following is a presentation of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. Our first reading comes from Psalm 22, verses 25 through 31. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will pay before those who fear him. The poor shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nation shall worship before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. To him, indeed, shall all who sleep in the earth bow down. Before him shall bow all those who go down to the dust, and I shall live for him. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord and proclaim his deliverance to a people yet unborn, saying that he has done it. From 1 John, chapter 4. Beloved, let us love one another, because love is from God. Everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, for God is love. God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Beloved, since God loved us so much, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is perfected in us. And that love includes grace. Thank you. <laughs> uh, in our previous series that ended a couple weeks ago, uh, it was called The New Normal, with an asterisk, because it's neither new nor normal. Um, I was trying to emphasize throughout that series that some of what we thought was new or felt new to us was actually really old, right? Uh, and so that, that waking up to a new day or experiencing a new season, um, even a new life or a new truth, uh, was in some ways waking up or living into an old truth. And sometimes that's because the new truth uh, has been or the, or the current truth, as we understand it, has been sort of distorted, and the old one has been forgotten. And so the task for uh, people who practice an ancient religion is to go back to what it was closer to the beginning sometimes. In this series, which is called Reclaiming Christianity, and it's starting today, I want to follow up on that idea and go deeper into some of the specific topics. I want to go a little deeper into Christian theology and practice, um, and I want to find some of those concepts that have been, I don't know how to say it, maybe they've been kidnapped, maybe they've been distorted, maybe they've been obscured or covered up, maybe they've been replaced with something else. I want to go back and find those truths that are beautiful and that are transformational, that really did change the world, that have subsequently been made frankly, somewhat ugly and have been turned into, in the worst case, tools of manipulation and control. 
I'm going to look especially at those ones that were beautiful, that have been distorted and made ugly. And I want to reclaim them. I want to reclaim Christianity from those who have taken it away, if you will. And also, maybe, I want to allow a space and a way for Christianity to reclaim you and for you to reclaim Christianity for yourself. Because I know that some of you are on the fence. Maybe have actually finished stepping over the fence and you're not quite sure why you're even still in the room or still coming into a church. To spoil the, the whole point, <laughs> I think that sometimes what happens is we find ourselves rejecting Christianity, rejecting Jesus as a whole, when what we really want to do or ought to do perhaps is to reject the distortion, to reject the ugly manipulation that it's been turned into, and to find our way back to what it was. <laughs> to reclaim it from those who've taken it, to allow it to reclaim us, and even maybe to reclaim it for ourselves. So in the next few weeks, we're going to talk about reclaiming the Bible as a source of truth and inspiration, rather than as an owner's manual or a rule book or an answer sheet. I want to reclaim the practice of confession as a pathway to transformation, rather than a form of shaming or control. And I even want to try to reclaim the idea of salvation. To come to understand in a new way what it means to be saved. So we're going to do all of that work in reclaiming Christianity. But nowhere is this more necessary than with the central image of the Christian faith. The cross. So that's where we're going to start today. Trying to reclaim the cross. Now here I need to warn you. Um, <clears throat> this topic absolutely lights me up. <laughs> and um, it's, it's probably the most uh, important awakening that I've experienced in my faith in my entire life, right, since I first raised my hand and got saved when I was six. Until now, and I just turned 44, and I can no longer plausibly say that I'm not in my mid-40s. <laughs> right. it's, the, it's the most significant, I think, evolution of my belief that I could share with you. And so consequently, it can be hard to put it into 20 minutes in a coherent way. And so when I start talking about it, I'm like, oh, I want to say everything. Of course, if you say everything, you actually say nothing because you don't make any sense. I'm prone to getting distracted and, and pursuing rabbit trails and maybe even getting a little ranty. I think in a good way, but still. I'm going to try to do my best with this Reclaiming the Cross. Because it starts with this premise. The cross, as it is commonly described and preached, is a distortion. It's a distortion of God and God's love. It's a distortion of the Trinity it's a distortion of what actually was happening in that moment. The story, as it has frequently been told, will no, no, no doubt be familiar to all of you, whether you've heard it 500 times 
or whether you just wandered into a church for the first time today and you happen to exist in America. The story begins, interestingly enough, with the, with the idea that everyone is inherently sinful. It's not where the Bible story begins, but that's where this story begins. It goes on to say that sin requires a just punishment, actually specifically a bloody punishment. And then it goes on to say that knowing this, and knowing that we have all fallen short and would continue to fall short, God sent the Son into the world so that God could apply the punishment required by justice for each of us in the body of Jesus Christ. And so the Father pours out his wrath for all sin for all time on his totally innocent Son and abandons him. It goes on to say, if you believe this, you will be saved. The counterfactual being, if you do not believe this in this way, including if you find it somewhat repulsive and cannot do the good works required to make yourself believe it, you will be condemned to receive the punishment that Jesus took on your behalf. Now, I can cite chapter and verse, and so can some of you, to construct that. The problem is, in order to do that, you have to, in my view, ignore some of the bigger picture truths, some of the big principles that are laid out in the story of our faith. I have a book that's like this thick of very academic essays on this matter. And I'm going to try to remove the academia from it and get it down to the time that I'm allotted. And so the way I'll do this is to give you three proofs. <laughs> proofs, right. Um, that's part of the problem is we're obsessed with proofs. But I'm going to give you a practical proof, a doctrinal proof or a dogmatic truth, and then the proof that matters the most. And the wink-wink is that they're not really intended to be proofs exactly, but they're uh, some counterweight to the story that I've just recited for you, which if I asked you to show hands or give the thumbs up in Zoom, every one of you would have recognized. Here's the practical proof. This is just like, huh, that's an inconvenient truth for the people who want to preach that way. The apostles never did. The apostles of Jesus never told that story in their preaching. They went all around the known world and Christianity exploded and changed the world forever. But it was not based on that message. If you want to test my, my uh, assertion there, you can read the book of Acts for yourself and, and find those sermons. You may be able to twist them a little bit and add a few words here and there, as sometimes our translators do, but you will not find that in the preaching of the apostles. That's the practical proof. Here's the doctrinal proof, which I recognize only matters to people who are already deeply committed to Christianity. Right. If, you are, if you're a person who says, well, if it's a heresy... I can't believe it. This one's for you. <laughs> but many of you I recognize are not in that exact place, even those of you who do take the, the title Christian for yourself. 
But it is heresy to separate the Father from the, trun- from the Son. I started to say Trinity because that's where I'm going with this. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three in one, one God, co-eternally, in the perichoresis, which is this fancy word that means a circle dance, right? The Trinity exists as one forever. And if you want to say that at the cross, the Father turned his back on and abandoned the Son, well, have the Council of the Church got some harsh words for you. (laughs) Again, I recognize that many of you in the room don't necessarily care what the Council of Nicaea said or the Council of Chalcedon. But if we believe in a triune God, we are not allowed to temporarily, even for a couple of days, separate the Godhead and to keep the Father and the Son separate from one another, especially in that oppositional abandonment kind of way. And here's where I I tip my hat back to the, the psalm that was read at the call to worship. Psalm 22, I read you, I had Ken read you the good parts of the psalm, but it starts out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which is what Jesus said on the cross, and which is what some of you might think if you're in an argumentative mood right now. Well, Jesus said that God forsook him on the cross. And my answer to you is Jesus started to quote Psalm 22, and you should read the rest of it. That's the doctrinal proof. Practical proof, the doctrinal proof. Now, here's the one that I think matters the most. That telling of the gospel story, that version of the good news, is not consistent with the teachings or life of Jesus himself. How many of you heard, in part of that telling, uh, God is so holy that God cannot look upon sin? Uh, if Jesus was fully God, yes, how do you explain the stories where Jesus engages directly with sinners? In, in John 8, looks right in the face of the woman who was clearly caught in an act of sin and has been dragged before him by the religious authorities and says, I do not condemn you. Not only looks on sin, but forgives it. By the way, that God cannot look on sin thing is from the Bible. It's from the prophet. One of the prophets saying, God, you cannot look on sin, so why do you? It's a person who's really irritated that sin is allowed to exist saying this. So it's not quite honest to the source to then make that one of the big principles for all time in our religion. Jesus taught... Forgiveness in the face of sin. Jesus taught nonviolence. Not only in the teaching, turn the other cheek from the Sermon on Mount that we're all familiar with. But even in the moment of his arrest, where in one of the tellings of this story, a disciple of his uses a weapon, a sword, and cuts off the ear of one of the people coming to arrest Jesus. And Jesus says, no, put that away. That is not how this works anymore, and then goes so far as to heal the ear of the, that has been cut off by this disciple's sword. I would submit to you that if you believe the teachings of Jesus and want to obey them, to, that is to attend to them and to heed them, 
You cannot construct a version of salvation, or uh, the fancy word is atonement, that requires violence to make it work. It's Jesus who not only taught nonviolence and forgiveness in the face of sin, but modeled this teaching in the most visceral and painful object lesson that you could possibly imagine, which is what? The cross, which is what I want to reclaim, which is what I want to help you reclaim. That moment, that occasion of the crucifixion, what if instead of being a moment of wrath and abandonment was a moment of forgiveness and eternal, endless love? You say, well, Jesus called people to repent. He called them to repent and what? And believe the good news. Now, this is still problematic for me if you have allowed yourself to redefine good news. If the, if the very horrible, horrible story that I just described for you is, has been defined in your mind forever as good news, well then, repent and believe the good news means for you. Repent and believe this awful story that sounds more like pagan sacrifice than Christianity. What if it actually was good news? What if repent and believe the good news actually meant here is something good for you to believe? And what if the repentance part meant turn away from that other story that's been so deeply embedded in our religious system for so long, both, both us right now and Jesus in his Second Temple Judaism context? Let's not get committed to the phrase, the good news, as defined by whoever gets a microphone that day. Happens to be me at the moment, so lucky me. Let's not be so committed to the phrase, the good news, that we are willing to abandon the the idea that it actually means what it says. What I would say to you is that this God of wrath and vengeance who is so furious about sin that he would kill his own son, that that God is a monster and is not worthy of our worship. Let bad religion die. We are imitators of the God who we worship. And if that's the God you worship, that is what you will imitate. So if you wonder why in Christian circles the answer to every problem seems to be shame, even violence, shunning and abandonment, just look to the source. That wrathful God is there if you want to try to find him. The word wrath is in the Bible, actually lots of times. This is not a word study on the book, uh, on, the, on the meaning of wrath in the Bible. It's there. 
All I'm trying to say to you is that it doesn't mean what it's been purported to mean. Because again, you have to overlook some pretty huge concepts, some very top-level principles. And ultimately, I would submit to you that that telling of the gospel, which is so familiar to you and to me, is a distortion. And it looks more like a a caricature of, of a pagan sacrifice, right? You've seen this in, you know, pulp novels or in B-movies that, you know, that the the religious observance of taking the virgin and throwing her into the volcano, right? This is just a Christianized version of that. So what does it look like then to reclaim the cross in a different understanding Well, let's first return to the passage that you heard read right before the sermon. The the first John chapter 4 passage. Beloved, let us love one another because love is from God. Everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, for God is love. God's love was revealed among us in this way. God hated sin so much that he placed that hate on his son and cast him... No. That's not what it says. God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that God loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Beloved, since God loved us so much, we also ought to love one another. Did you notice in verse 10 that it had that phrase, atoning sacrifice? This is one of those skeleton key phrases from the Bible. Right? It's kind of like good news, actually, in that atoning sacrifice is not a phrase that you encounter in common English parlance most of the time. How many of you said atoning sacrifice at one point, just in general conversation in the last 10 years? Right? <laughs> You're lying. Um, <laughs> Or you're a theology nerd, which, love you. This, this phrase that we get in the NIV and the NRSV as, a, as atoning sacrifice um, has been translated in other places in other, uh, other ways. Other translations have come up with different English words for it. Right? And even the word atonement is a, is a kind of a made-up neologism at one point. It was a, it was a made-up word, at one meant. So it was originally meant to mean reconciliation. But then the theologians got a hold of it. No offense to the theologians in the room. This is one of those rabbit trails <laughs> that I probably need to not go down. But just because somebody says that this word that appears in the Bible means X, Y, and Z doesn't mean that it always means X, Y, and Z. That word, that phrase, has got suitcases full of baggage that are associated with it. And no one is allowed to just say to you, all of my suitcases of baggage, theologically, apply to that word. And if you don't believe me, then you don't believe the Bible because that word's in the Bible. Do you understand? I've gone on this rant recently, right? You know what I'm saying. 
What needs to be done with that word, if you wanted to, is to find where and how it's used in the scriptures elsewhere. And then if you wanted to be a super-duper nerd, you could look and see where it's used outside the scriptures at the same time in history. Because that would give you some clues as to what the author probably meant by it. Okay, pulling myself back in. Back onto the main road. Except for this. (laughs) At the beginning of chapter 4 of 1 John, you get these words. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see if they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. (laughs) False prophets. Some people, none of you I'm sure, would would hear the message that I'm giving and say that's a false prophet. (laughs) I say the other ones are the false prophets. (laughs) How do we settle this argument? By this you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And I'll go on to say, look for the fruit. And you've heard that one too. Because the Holy Spirit produces the fruit of the Spirit. You don't get it from other sources. Let me give you one more passage before I wrap up here. This is a passage that I think is so key to understanding this truth and to seeing this gospel in its fullness, to seeing this as good news, to seeing it as a way for us to live into that phrase that God sent the Son into the world so that through him we might live. This is how you do it. It's from Philippians chapter 2, where Paul says, Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited or grasped but he emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness, and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name. Listen, That's the entire Christian ethic in one little poem. Yes, it's probably a poem or a song that Paul's quoting. This deep, profound, beautiful theological truth was already codified into verse by the time Paul wrote the letter to the Philippians so that he could say to them, anticipating that they would recognize it, Remember that thing about Jesus? That's what you should do too. Jesus was in very nature God and he emptied himself and he took on human likeness and being found in that form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And then God exalted him. Let that same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. To put it very quickly, Jesus was God He emptied himself out of love for all people. Now, you. Now, that's the gospel. Jesus was God. He emptied himself completely out of love for all people. And now it's your turn. That's Philippians 2.
I'll give you that old story. That's actually really more the new story. One more time, and then I'll give you a contrasting one. In order to deal with the problem of sin, God sent the Son into the world and exacted the punishment required by justice on the Son and then abandoned him. If you believe this, you'll be saved. How about this one? Knowing that sin was a problem that was destroying all of us, God sent the Son into the world and we murdered him. We did it. People did it. Now, don't hear me saying, like, you know, you were five years old and you stole a grape in the grocery aisle, so you are, you are just as much a sinner as the people who murdered Jesus. That's, not what I, that's, the old, that's the old story that's actually not that old. I want to give you the new story that's actually much older. God sent the Son into the world, and, and the people he was sent to save murdered him. But God inverted that very murder into the occasion where all people for all time are forgiven. Believe this because it is the key to life. Because it will change everything for you. The gospel of the cross is not the appeasement of God's wrath but it's the occasion of reconciliation. The gospel of the cross is not centered on law and punishment, but on love and forgiveness. I want so desperately to reclaim that for myself and for you. Jesus was God, and he emptied himself completely out of love for all people, including the ones who murdered him, including you, who did whatever you did, including the little one, spoiler alert, it was me, who stole the grape in the grocery store. Out of love for all people, Jesus emptied himself. And now it's our turn. Can we allow this gospel, this beautiful telling, to overtake the distorted one, to knock it off the shelf and to put the beautiful thing back up there? Can we allow that to shape our lives, to guide our understanding of faith? Can we reclaim the cross together? I would like to pray that we can. God, we turn to you now, maybe having heard something that feels very new and perhaps even very unsettling. Maybe having been reminded of the fact that there is something beautiful at the root. I pray that whatever I have said that is true would be received and would take root. 
and anything else would fall away. I pray that you would give us the capacity and the courage to embrace this beautiful story and to let go of the stories that have been used to shame us, to manipulate us, to keep us in line. By your spirit, may the same mind be in us that was in Christ Jesus. And may we join in the eternal dance of love that we see in the triune God. It's in the name of that God that we pray. Amen. For more information, visit us at artisanchurch.com.